Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Before you vote for president this year, you need to watch The Choice 2016 from Frontline on PBS. Go beyond the headlines to discover who Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton really are from those who know them best. Watch The Choice 2016 Tuesday, September 27th at 9 p.m. 8 central only on PBS or stream it on pbs.org frontline. Hello and welcome to Politico's 2016 Nerdcast, where we bring you the stories behind the stories and geek out on this amazing circus of an election. It's Thursday, September 22nd, and I'm Kristen Roberts, national editor. Here are the numbers that matter this week. 100 million. That's how many people ad buyers think will watch Monday night's debate. 649. The difference between the number of staffers on Hillary Clinton's payroll and Donald Trump's. 68. That's the percentage of presidential ads aired in the all-important Orlando media market that are pro-democratic. And 4.2. The average points that Republican Senate candidates are running ahead of Trump in six core battleground states. Plus, we'll talk with Marjorie Dannenfelser, an icon of the conservative movement, about the religious rights conversion to Trump. So grab your calculators and enjoy the 2016 Nerdcast. Here we go again. Welcome back, Ken Vogel. Super excited to be here. Hadass Gold. Hello. And Scott Bland. Hello, pod people. We're going to do something a little different. I want to give a special welcome to politics reporter Katie Glick, who sat with me today to interview Marjorie Dannenfelser. Katie, tell us about Marjorie. Thanks, Kristen. Well, Marjorie is the head of the Susan B. Anthony list, which is a big, a, a which is a big uh, anti-abortion rights group. She is also the head of Donald Trump's pro-life coalition. Um, this is an initiative she's undertaken really just in the last week, um, and she is working to bring over more uh, pro-life voters, more evangelical voters, to support Donald Trump. This is a constituency that um, over the last year has not always been real friendly to him, um, but you know, increasingly it looks like that's changing, and she is working to try and speed that so up. You You've covered conservatives and the evangelical movement throughout the entire 2016 contest, and you've done a really good job, as I've told you a million times. <laughs> um, tell our listeners about the conversion that religious Republicans have made on Donald Trump. Sure. So during the primary, Donald Trump was a total non-starter for a lot of these religious uh, Republicans, for evangelical voters, for pro-life voters. Um, you know, they felt that his record on a number of issues that they cared about, whether it's gay marriage, whether it's abortion, whether it's his personal life, um, you know, were just not where they were at in, in terms of, of their values and their politics. But um, as we moved into the general election, he became the nominee. You know, increasingly, a lot of them, and especially a lot of evangelical leaders, 
have started to feel that, you know, this is a binary choice. You know, the Supreme Court is at stake. Um, and, you know, they were going to choose to believe that the Donald Trump meant it when he said that he'd appoint conservative justices, um, whereas Hillary Clinton, you know, they're, they're pretty confident that she would appoint liberal justices who are going to be making these decisions on issues like abortion. The Supreme Court thing is really interesting because at the beginning of the year, all we were hearing was that Democrats were going to use the Supreme Court vacancy and the fact that Republican senators were keeping them from filling it uh, as as an electoral cudgel, and they were going to to hit them, uh, Republicans with it all year long. And in fact, it's turned out that you know on the Republican side to motivate their own voters, it seems like Republicans are making much greater use of this uh, at this point, precisely for those reasons. Totally. I mean, that is the central argument um, that evangelicals who and other pro life voters, social conservatives who are already on board with Trump, that is the key argument that they make to get some of their co religionists and other uh, social conservatives uh, on board with them as well. Great. Let's listen to the interview. Let's give a special welcome to Marjorie Dannenfelser, president of the Susan B. Anthony List and an influential supporter of Donald Trump. Marjorie, thank you so much for being with us. It's great being here. So I think it is fair to say that Donald Trump is not the ideal candidate for the people who um, count you among their leaders. Well, I said that at the beginning of the primary. He was not my first choice, but now he is. And since the beginning of that primary, a lot of things have happened um, in him and his campaign. One is that over that time, he has committed to some very solid pro-life commitments. And we know her commitments, and they are diametrically opposed. Um, And I'll just tell you what they are, if you don't mind. Please. They are um, pro-life judges, defunding Planned Parenthood, uh, ending abortion after five months, and protecting the Hyde Amendment. And all of those positions are positions that are in diametrically the opposite. Tell our listeners about the Hyde Amendment. The Hyde Amendment is the basically the taxpayer's conscience clause, meaning a taxpayer uh, should not be involved in uh, paying for abortions. And that's been the law for about 40 years. And only just this election cycle has it become a relevant issue because Hillary Clinton has made it such. It's changed in the Democratic platform. It runs at about 30% at the most in the polls. So one wonders why would one make that reach? I think it's a moment of future planning and a little bit of arrogance. But we're glad that she made it an issue because we were using it. Tell me about the first time you met Donald Trump. The first time I met him, I thought um, he is a really good TV personality and it is very different from what he's like in person. He has he's conversational, just like we're talking right here. Um, His voice is conversational like ours is here. And I really thought uh, that's the difference. And somebody who's learned to be a TV personality and uh, be the big showman and um, and a um, and and your normal candidate. Uh, who has come from selling cars or comes from state legislature or being on the on the school board. Um, they just generally are not that big personality type. So I think that's part of why he has that that stage presence that he has. And I think as time has gone on, especially I would say in evidence in the last few weeks, I think he's become not a conventional candidate. He's never going to be that. But I think he's become more approachable, um, more conversational, is that your personal experience? That's my. Of him? That's actually my experience, and that's what I think is finally coming through on the 
on the stage in his appearances. And I and I think we'll see that um, on Monday night at the first debate. Katie, jump in. How did you meet him, actually? I'm curious now that Christopher Well, we met in New York at an evangelical gathering. Uh, my organization is a, yeah, in my organization is a pro-life group, but a lot of our members are evangelicals and Catholics made up of a lot of uh, people like that. Some, no, no religion at all. However, this was a great gathering for us to be. And um, and the point was to have a smaller gathering to uh, to actually try to get to know him a little bit. Mm-hmm. But no matter how you try, those are really big groups. So you know, I haven't uh, had a lengthy dinner and conversation with him, but I did get a very good sense of him personally. And I think his um, sons uh, speak well for him, and uh, just their who they are speaks well for him. So that was the that was the environment, and that was when he first really made uh, the very strong commitment to pro life judges. And that terminology is something that no candidate I know has ever used. They've said um, constitutionalist judges, judges who are going to interpret the Constitution um, using its original intent, you know, things like that. But he is a man who says what he means. He says what's on his mind. And he, yeah. And and in case there's any lack of clarity, I'm just going to tell you, pro-life judges. And that mm-hmm. is a, that is what he uh, believes. That is what he told the group. And that's actually uh, in the commitments that he's written for my coalition to uh, take to the bank. Marjorie, let me just push back on that for a second because I'm not sure anybody really knows what Donald Trump believes about things. I mean, we've seen a lot happen over the last few months where Mm -hmm. his positions have shifted and everyone is allowed to change their minds about things. But a lot of the positions we've seen since the end of the primary are far more traditionally leftist or democratic positions than traditionally Mm -hmm. Republican positions. What gives Mm -hmm. you kind of the confidence that what he says now to Mm -hmm. you and the people who support your organization will be what he says after he is president, should he win? It's the only question, because to run an organization like I do, it has to be run with integrity. So there's only one way. And you're right, that only God himself knows truly what's in anybody's heart and including his. Um, but uh, the reason that I have confidence in, um, in campaigning for him in battleground states and doing what we do every day, pulling together this national coalition, is that from the very beginning, we've gotten these commitments um, from him. And, uh, and uh, we've done the due diligence every single step of the way to have this group of, of um, commitments that are in contrast with Hillary. And then um, the actions that follow the words and naming Mike Pence, the VP, uh, candidate in putting people around him like uh, Kellyanne Conway, David Bossy, John Mashburn, Alan Cobb. I, I mean, I really know the depth and breadth of his campaign because I actually really know those people involved. You don't put those people in, around you if you are going to renege on your commitments. And um, and with you know, of course, every campaign's got transition plans already, and even. And I and I have every reason to believe that those look pretty solid as well, though none of that is public or can't talk about any of those right now. But so but the but the the, the point is, it's the words and the actions that speak in personnel. And uh, and honestly, this I've never seen a candidate write him be involved himself in the writing of a letter um, to the entire pro-life community and the and the country that was so good, so solid. Um, and so determined to contrast it with her record. Mm. 
So you mentioned battleground states. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was taking a look at some of the polls coming out of Iowa, which, uh, you know, is not a place that, that Donald Trump won, uh, you know, in, mm-hmm. in the caucuses, as of course you know. You know, and it looks like he's still got some work to do with evangelical voters. It actually looks like he's underperforming where Romney was at this time um, in, in 2012 and where, where McCain was. Um, I wonder why you think that is and, and sort of how much work mm-hmm. you, you feel that this pro-life coalition has to do to address that. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's an important part of, of um, the, the broader pro-life. Coalition. Yeah, it, it is the work of this of this coalition, and and it is important because getting word to those voters that there is a solid commitment. I mean, even a little commitment card where we have reproduced his actual letter with his own words saying who he is and why why he is a pro life candidate is really important. Um, evangelicals, of course, are along the continuum. I mean, there are some people who self describe as pro choice. Evangelicals. Mm-hmm. So sometimes the polls are not really necessarily reflective of the diversity of the evangelical community. And Catholics, of course, are mm-hmm. very strongly pro-life, but not all of them. Right. So the pro-life community is a portion of both of those. And so to the extent that a very large portion is evangelical, this will help. And it does take a long time. You can't assume that when somebody has made a commitment that they're going to know it right away. That's why our uh, Susan B. Anthony list forces are out so strong in the battleground states of North Carolina, Florida, and Ohio, going door to door. We just actually um, reached 600,000 um, people at homes in those in those um, in those states, and we'll reach a million by the end because that person to person commitment and conversation is so vital for exactly that for that credentialing from a person that you know that you trust. So the the flip side of that, though, is, um, you know, if, if we do see that, uh, you know, maybe there is some some discrepancy there there in the polls, maybe not everyone is quite at, mm-hmm. at that point where you'd like to see them and where McCain was, where, where Romney was. You know, I, I have spoken with some people in Iowa, for example, who say that, well, you know what, he's leading in the state anyway. Maybe he doesn't need, um, you know, to perform as strongly with the evangelical vote, with the pro-life vote. I, I wonder what you say to that. I think that's how elections are lost (laughs) when individuals think that their vote doesn't matter. So I think that's just one more reason why getting that message that uh, that it is going to be won or lost with a handful of votes. Evangelicals and Catholics and pro-lifers have a really, really great shot at at winning this election for the life movement. And I also believe very strongly that Hispanics and independents do as well. Um, They're the new group of people that we're working very hard to reach that are getting information from only one source on the abortion issue, and that is from uh, the Democratic candidates and and the pro-choice movement. So that fresh information is our, we're already seeing the response at doors in all the states we're in that it really does move their vote. So I'm hoping that the I believe and I hope that the polls will show polls will show afterwards that that made a big difference that they did themselves. Ted Cruz was your first choice. I didn't really have a first choice. No. Carly Fiorina, I thought okay. Hung the Moon. I thought Cruz is a great. I liked Rubio. Truthfully, I um, I really thought we had one of the best stables that we've ever had in terms of the pro-life issue. Well, it was a very qualified field for sure. It was indeed. It was indeed. Is it time for Ted Cruz to endorse? Yes. I believe it is time for him to. I, I, um, I know him very well. I admire him very much. I'm very much involved in helping him be a conservative leader after um, the election. But I think there's a point where you must, and you can't count on the rest of everybody else in the land to uh, do the work of electing um, the right choice. I mean, again, two choices. 
and clear commitments on both sides. It's a gift in politics to have that amount of clarity. And when you see it and you're a leader, then you got to lead in the right direction. If Donald Trump calls you on Saturday morning and says, what should I do on Monday at the debate? What is the thing I should focus on? What is the right tactic to go against Hillary Clinton? What is the thing you tell him? I say stay on substance and don't get angry and personal. Those are the two things. I think he's been doing that in the last three weeks, and it has really paid off. The more he's focused on her, the better off uh, he'll be at the end of the debate. Thank you so much for being with us. It was a pleasure. Anytime. Let's get to our first data point, 100 million. That's how many people the ad buyers think will watch Monday night's debate. Sorry, Monday night football. Hadass, the biggest political event in television history? I would guess so. If I was to put money on it, I would say that we are going to get the highest numbers we've ever had for a presidential debate, and it's going to rival Super Bowl numbers. And Super Bowl is often the most watched uh, televised event in the United States. sound like Donald Trump over there. I'm just I'm just telling you what my expert opinion is. And <clears throat> the highest rated debate in the past since Nielsen started tracking was 1980, um, I believe, which was 80 million people who watched. I actually think that the 1960 debates potentially had higher number of people watching them. That was before Nielsen was tracking. So we really and I, I regardless, I think that this debate will rival those by quite a bit um, to the point that a lot of the networks have sold out their advertising. And what's funny is that there is going to be no commercial breaks during the debate. <laughs> so they are selling out their advertisements for the pre and post shows. That's extraordinary. And, actually. and this is going to undersell like the total number of people who are actually watching. Right. Because there's so many you know, people are going to be watching online as well. Right. And right. those are a lot harder to count. Exactly. And so, I mean, every single network will carry the debate. Uh, and C-SPAN and online Twitter and Facebook are both going to be live streaming. So everywhere you turn on Monday night, you will be presented with this debate. Except for ESPN. Except for ESPN. There's a fear among some of the sports networks uh, that their some of their advertising revenue that they normally get out of Monday night football because it's such a valuable place is going to be taken out because of this presidential debate. So, Ken, thinking about Monday, how are these candidates preparing for this incredible moment? Well, we know that Hillary Clinton is preparing very assiduously, as you would expect that she would. She did well in the debates against Bernie Sanders. But the fear among some of the Democrats I talked to is that she may uh, she has a tendency to occasionally be like a little uh, snappish, even like sarcastic uh, and that that might not come across well. I happen to think that that's actually potentially a more effective way of debating Donald Trump. But you saw all the Republicans during the primary who tried to at various points like either ignore Trump, laugh him off, or sometimes out Trump, Trump, come back at him as aggressively and sort of mockingly as uh, as he uh, d- did to them. That didn't work at all. Hillary Clinton has a very different approach. A lot of facts she throws in, but I think she shines the best, uh, has in the past debates when she's either shown a little vulnerability or self-deprecation, even humor. You remember when uh, Obama, uh, or rather the, during the primary debate in 2008 with Obama, where the, the moderator cited some poll numbers uh, suggesting that she was untrustworthy or not liked, and she said, well, that hurts my feelings. And Obama interjected, you're likable enough, Hillary. Good moment for her, very bad moment for him. That kind of shows, to me, that's the blueprint for uh, for going after Trump. This is a really interesting thing because I think we've talked on and off on this podcast and definitely in the newsroom about the different approaches that 
female candidates have to take when they're on that kind of a debate stage. And so many times we hear operatives or debate preppers saying that women have to be worried about being too aggressive. But the best moments that she's had over the last year have been moments where she has been a little bit more aggressive. You think about last October when she was sitting for how many hours was it in front of that Benghazi panel? And she was taking none of it. And she had that sort of sarcastic, you know, snide, or at least, you know, I know what this is all about, kind of face on the entire time. And it worked well for her. It's a really fine line for her. There's a lot of risk there, but I think it's, it's potentially very high reward. And I, I actually am in the minority in thinking that her style, her innate style, not the style that, that, uh, that she's, she's coached into. Yeah, that she where she's loaded up with all these facts and it takes her a while to get to the point. Her innate style, I think, is, is potentially very well suited to sort of put Trump in his place in a way that we haven't seen from the Republicans during the I mean, primary. that's something that we've heard from her staff is that she has a very dry sense of humor and can be sarcastic. But I think you're right that it's it's a really fine line that any woman on stage has to thread between uh, sounding shrill. A lot of times when she's like yelling at her rallies, you get a lot of people like, oh, like when she's yelling, it's just, I just think of my mom or my wife yelling at me. Uh, and, and that's going to be a real thing that she has to contend with because she has to come off as calm and as tough, but still not too shrill. And she shouldn't yell and all of these things while dealing with this like tornado in front of her. The I mean, angry the woman character. Right. right. The shrill, Ugh, the shrill nonsense. critique is obviously, you know, so such a double standard oh, and God so sexist, but you are 100% right that like a lot of people voice that opinion, uh, sexist and sort of double standard-ish as it may be. Well, here's what we know for sure, Scott, and then I want you to jump in here. We know that her team is eager for her to display a grasp of the substance and to present something that voters have said they see in her already, and that is a more presidential posture, at least compared to Donald Trump. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You know, uh, our colleague Steve Shepard had a piece this week looking uh, through the various national polling on how voters see the uh, the two candidates uh, in terms of how they would respond to terrorism. And uh, it's, it's pretty close, but I think narrowly the polls have tended to say narrowly that Clinton would do a better job than Trump. But there are all these other numbers about, you know, the, the attributes of what uh, people think about them. And some of this stuff is is kind of reverse engineered a little bit. You know, people uh, people who are supporting Clinton are more likely to say, like, you know, yes, of, of course, you know, I'm, I'm the, you know, she has a positive answer to these questions because I'm supporting her and vice versa for Trump. But more people consistently say that she is qualified and prepared to take over the presidency. And I think she's going to be looking to uh, amplify that in people's minds, in her answers, in her demeanor, in her performance in the debate. Trump, uh, meanwhile, I think, you know, he he scores well among people who are looking for strength and a strong, strong leader type uh, thing and so I think again that's going to be something that that he is projecting every day at these rallies and uh, kind of these you know bombastic comments about handling terrorism hang- handling immigration things like that but that's going to be a theme that continues into the debates. But I she think. has to be incredibly careful because Trump is so good at being a showman and if she gets too mired into the details of policy I don't think that that's what these debates are about. The debates for a lot of people are a way to 
figure out the candidate's demeanors and what is it going to be like looking at this person as president on stage. And so while it is important for her, sure, to show that she has a grasp of the policy ideas, again, she's going to have to find the balance between showing that she clearly knows what she's talking about without going into all these crazy details and losing, I feel like, the audience. Let's talk, though, about this moment where he's going to try to display strength. This is his... This has been his whole game, right? That he's the stronger guy. He's going to make America law and strong. Order. Okay, the law and order candidate. And this is coming back to the trail this week, no? Right. So Donald Trump, after the events that have been on, happening in North Carolina, and we've had a, a couple other uh, police shootings, and he's saying that he wanted to institute stop and frisk. And initially, uh, it was interpreted that he was saying he wanted to stop and frisk nationwide. And now he's saying it's just for Chicago. Uh, and he used the example that if you see us, if police see someone with a gun they'll th- or think they has a gun, they'll stop, they'll frisk him, and then they'll take the gun away. So I guess Donald Trump is coming for people, some of people's guns. Um, but he's he's trying to come out immediately and say, look, I will take care of this. I will stop these things from happening. You won't see uh, people protesting and rioting when I'm in charge because I will help the police. I will be a better supporter of the police. I will uh, get rid of all the, like, the bad actors that we might have by doing something like stop and frisk, which has been, I'm pretty sure, ruled unconstitutional uh, by at least one court. And the New York City, which I think was the city that really instituted this, uh, in the Giuliani it. era. Yeah, you know, has gone back on it. And the city council came out and, and spoke against Donald Trump's suggestion. But for a lot of people, you know, when they see these images of literally cities on fire, I mean, there were truck drivers having their cargoes looted. The Hornets, like, uh, fan store was broken into and looted. And it just seems like chaos. And Donald Trump it's is... pretty much, by the way, the only way that anyone's going to wear a Charlotte Hornets jersey <laughs> is if they get it for free through a riot. <laughs> way to make light of the situation there, Ken. <laughs> but anyways, the uh, aside from the Hornets, uh, Donald Trump is seen as this strong man. And that's part of his appeal is he's like, I'm going to fix it. I can fix it. I will make sure that this does not happen. And then you have Hillary Clinton, who's like, well, we really need to support everybody and uh, we need to be calm in these situations. And when you're looking at the two, that's why he's going to probably come out on stage and just say, you know, yeah, stop and frisk because we need to stop this problem the same way that he did with the with the the Muslim ban. Because for him, it's just do whatever you need to do to stop it. I'm the strong man. I think this gets back to what Ken was saying before about the the kind of dry uh, style that that Clinton can have sometimes if she wants to, and whether that's going to come through. You know, and the interactions between these candidates. Trump has based his campaign on being this this strong strong man and projecting strength. What happens if if Clinton kind of chuckles and and shakes her head? You know, at something. And, and how does Trump react to that? I think that's that's going to be. Uh, a a big moment in in the debate if if something like that happens she, and you can you can imagine you know dozens of subjects on, on where the interplay on that could could end up becoming a big moment again not not only on the policy but in terms of what you were saying Hadass in terms of how these candidates are actually dealing with each other up on stage in front of millions of people well C-SPAN is going to do a split screen so you're oh, at, that's interesting. the entire time of this debate you're going to see both of their faces and I'm sure a lot of other um, places will might be doing the same thing. Uh, what we might also be seeing is some of the networks might even be fact-checking uh, in their chirons, which will be really fascinating to see who does that if they do it. Because we've had this whole debate of will the moderators fact-check, but they'll probably be adding context underneath. Are we going to see a lot of networks say, um, like, 
you know, Donald Trump is incorrect, this and this and this. Or stop and frisk has been ruled unconstitutional. I mean, on that one in particular, I think, uh, I mean, I agree with Scott uh, that that there is the potential for her to come across as, as, you know, snarky or condescending, patronizing maybe is the best word. But But it could could work, I'm saying. Yeah, it it could work. But I think in in this particular example, stop and frisk, much like with the Muslim ban, she's going to have a very specific response ready and it's going to be one that seeks to cast him as a racist and and you know there is a, an extreme risk of that when he is endorsing policies like stop and frisk and like the muslim ban he already is faring extremely poorly with uh with all blocks of uh, all minority demographics and you know there is some thought that even his outreach to the african-american community is not necessarily aimed at cutting into clinton's dominance of the white vote i'm sorry of the black vote but rather to sort of assuage concerns among suburban white voters that he is a racist so you could see clinton potentially trying to use this debate to inflame those concerns and to cast him as a racist Let's take a quick break for our sponsor. Before you vote for president this year, you need to watch The Choice 2016 from Frontline on PBS. Frontline's award-winning political team takes a hard, in-depth, side-by-side look at Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Go beyond the headlines and the caricatures to discover who they really are and what makes them tick, with unprecedented access to those who know them best. Watch The Choice 2016, Tuesday, September 27th at 9 p.m. 8 central, only on PBS or stream it on pbs.org slash frontline. Let's get to the next data point. It is 649. That's the difference between the number of staffers on Hillary Clinton's payroll versus Donald Trump's. Here's another way to look at it. Trump boosted his staff in August by 66%, and her campaign is still beating him. Ken, what's this tell you about Trump's get out the vote operation with now, what, 46 days left in this competition? Yeah, I mean, he is really at risk of getting crushed in the, in the get out the vote effort by Clinton's forces who have been on the ground doing this stuff. I mean, she's, she's had a payroll. Her payroll right now is 789 people, but she's had a payroll around that 700 person level for quite some time. Trump, as you mentioned, uh, he, he increased his pay, he increased the number of staff. He's, he's now up to... Um, 140 people up from 84 the preceding month, but that's just not going to get it done. So what we hear from Republicans, they're really worried about this, but they also point to the RNC. The RNC does, in fact, have a lot of people on the ground, more than they've had in past elections, but that's offset by the DNC, which has, you know, just as uh, potentially around the same number of people on the ground. Uh, and so in an election where you're, you know, looking at tightening polls and you're looking at just a few key states and a few key uh, districts and counties within those states, having those people on the ground to actually physically go and do this sort of old style retail politics of knocking on doors and getting people to the polls. You know, you could do all the Facebook ads you want and you could do all the TV ads you want. It takes manpower to have an effective get out the vote operation. Hillary Clinton just has a huge edge in that department. And we we got a very vivid uh, example uh, in the past week of how how this sort of thing ends up mattering. Uh, the New York Times upshot uh, data journalism section is, is now doing its own polling. And they released a poll in Florida showing a one point race between Clinton and Trump. But then what they did is they broke things down uh, by 
uh, voters' propensity to vote, the likelihood that voters are going to turn out. And Trump actually has a, a pretty wide lead among voters who they, in their model, are considered 90 to 100 percent likely to turn out. But then as you get into the smaller slices of the electorate where people are, you know, maybe still mostly likely to turn out, but not quite ranging into not very likely to turn out, Clinton's lead grows and grows and grows among those slices. And so what happens is this is the same sort of modeling that the campaigns do. And ultimately, they end up dispatching people to make phone calls or knock on the doors or, you know, otherwise track down, maybe on the internet, via TV, via mail, whatever, track down these voters and and convince them uh, to go vote. That's the, the basis of the modern turnout operation. And Clinton has one and Trump doesn't. So, Scott... What, how do pollsters determine the likelihood to vote? Is it simply asking how, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to vote? Or is there something more sophisticated at play? The, the answer is both. And it varies poll by poll. And this is part of the reason that you see variations by polls. What the New York Times is doing is they're using data from voter files, uh, the, the list of registered voters in each state, which shows uh, when these voters have voted and when they haven't voted in the past. And they're using that uh, to to make a determination as to how likely people are to turn out in 2016. It's it's very, uh, you know, you can you can use this past data to predict very, very well. Uh, how likely people are to. Most media pollsters don't do that. They are uh, calling people randomly. They're dialing random digits instead of pulling off a voter file. And they're asking them, are you likely, do you consider yourself likely to vote or not? And and you can get different results. In fact, you can ask the same group of people the same questions, but depending on the method that you're using to uh, decide likely voters, you can get different results from the exact same number of people answering the exact questions the same way. You know, and I should point out that the Trump campaign realizes that they have a problem here and they're at an extreme disadvantage. Uh, you know, those numbers that we cited about the advan- that about the total number of employees that they had on the uh, on their respective payrolls, those come from the Federal Election Commission reports that were filed this week. In the in Trump's report, we also see that he did in addition to increasing his number of uh, staffers and his total payroll, increase the amount of money that he spent on field consultants. So these are, you know, consultants contractors as opposed to direct employees, but they're potentially, in, in many cases, doing the same sort of get-out-the-vote uh, types of operations that we talked about. So he spent a million dollars, basically, almost a million dollars on field consultants in August, which is the period covered by the most recent FEC filings. That's more than double what he spent in July. So again, they're ramping up. They realize this is a deficiency, but they're still just so far behind. But Again, I go back oh, when I hear you talking about how much the ground game matters and et cetera. I go back to the primaries and did we not have some candidates who had excellent ground games and even more specific areas, you know, just states and primary states that proved that Donald Trump can still win without that ground game? Yeah, I mean, the primary is different. It's certainly a valid point. Um, you know, that said, like Cruz, Cruz was the, the sort of seen as the pinnacle of the ground game during the primary, and he won Iowa, and that was very much the sort of hand-to-hand, you know, get-out-the-vote right. effort. I mean, we heard but stories. But a caucus is different from a primary. Well, that's true. But, I mean, that's where you really see uh, the ability to offset a, um, a, a, a disadvantage in sort of energy and enthusiasm among the base with the, the very targeted ground game efforts. 
this. I mean, we heard stories about them targeting like dozens of people, you know, that they thought were in like specific counties that they thought were like the key. So literally like 24 people. Yeah, something like that. And in fact, it it worked in that case, obviously, as you point out, it didn't work in the primaries and it didn't even work in like every caucus state. But, um, you know, this is this is one of those areas where same, same sort of scenario with Clinton. She does not have her her base is just not as fired up right now as are the 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 hardcore Trump supporters and this is what you have to do you have to build an operation to offset that all right let's talk about the air war here's another data point 68% that's the percentage of presidential ads aired in the all important Orlando media market over the last month that are pro democratic scott what do you make of a stat like that in a state that more people than not believe will decide this election uh, this sort of thing doesn't happen uh, usually. It's, you know, to, to the extent that it's possible to uh, study this sort of thing empirically, political scientists have tried to run experiments on, on the effectiveness of television advertising. And basically what they've found is that often in political campaigns, it's a wash. You know, they spend millions and millions of dollars on these. But ultimately, if you and your opponent are spending at parity, which is what usually happens, uh, then you know, the, the TV ads don't have that much of an effect. But uh, Clinton is massively out-advertising Trump, and not just in Orlando, in a lot of the other key media markets. And in, in addition to that, uh, her campaign's additional focus on, on uh, target, you know, the science of, of data analytics and micro-targeting means, uh, you know, probably more of their target voters are seeing each one of the ads that they place. And even, you know, not just these local broadcast ads like this study is talking about, but going into local cable, you know, trying to figure out which of their supporters might be watching Honeymooners reruns at, at you know, 1 a.m. And, and finding people there and sending their message there. So it's, it's a big advantage. And, you know, it's, it's a little difficult to, to say exactly what the effect they're having is because we don't have a counterfactual, right? We, you know, we don't have an example of uh, the polls without these, the, this massive advertising advantage that, that Clinton has. But I, I think you know, all the research suggests that it's definitely something that's helping her. I mean, this really is extraordinary. Trump has largely gone dark. And we are into September already. Near the end of September, he's largely gone dark, not to mention the fact he hasn't run a single ad in Spanish. Now, the question that I have, is this a major bet, a big bet on the power of free media, or is it ineptitude? It's a combination of ineptitude, I think, and lack of resources. I mean, you look at the you look at the campaign finance reports, and, and it seems like he's like close to parity in terms of bringing in money, although the cash on hand is way off. And Hillary has done all this groundwork laying over the past months and months and months where she's built her operation, and Trump is trying to catch up to that. So he just doesn't have the the, the resources available to him that he can uh, you know continue to, to to sort of match her in the ad war. Uh, in fact, they the Trump campaign, going back to those FEC reports in August, they spent $5.3 million on paid media. And that was like by far the biggest that they had spent. Well, you look in a given month, you look over to the other side of the ledger, Hillary's FEC reports, $32.7 million. Wow. So that's like about six times as much. Um, and then, you know, in addition, I mean, you referred to like him, him going dark. It's not just Florida. Our uh, Steve Shepard had a story that Trump's ads last ran a week ago in four battleground states, Florida, North Carolina, Ohio, and New Hampshire. We quote Elizabeth Wilner, the uh, sort of preeminent TV uh, ad tracker, saying it's unprecedented for a major party nominee in this century to have an on-again, off-again TV ad buy. 
Uh, so you see right there how much of a disadvantage he's at. I th- what's also really fascinating, our colleague um, Steve Shepard did a story yesterday about some of his new ad buys on cable television. And he's advertising on like Fox, MSNBC, CNBC, Fox Business Network, but not CNN. Uh, which I find really fascinating. It's kind of like, okay, you're, okay, Fox, first of all, why are you advertising on Fox? Uh, you, like, he's on Fox all the time. So if you're talking about free media, he gets a lot of free media there. Preaching to the choir. And MSNBC uh, tends to have a bit more of a liberal, I mean, they're trying to change their direction and be more, you know, straight news, but they still have a like, liberal host. Uh, CNN seems like, you would want to target. Well, you already got Corey Lewandowski on the air as maybe, a Maybe that's it. But there was something in the back of my mind and uh, just thinking like, is this because he's so mad at CNN? He's always tweeting about them and how much he hates them and he can't, like he won't allow them to give them money. I, I mean, you have to wonder, there's certainly a lot of uh, sort of prosecuting of grudges that makes his way into like campaign strategy. Uh, but the other thing to, to think about in the, in the uh, paid media Disparities is not just the campaigns. Clinton has this huge apparatus, uh, Priorities USA being the, the main uh, TV advertising super PAC that is just going, you know, going crazy airing ads. And Trump really doesn't have anything. He's got this, you know, uh, like three or four competing super PACs that just haven't raised se- the serious money on the level that Priorities USA has. And, you know, we just had another super PAC enter its hat into the Derby one that's being uh, run by Todd Ricketts of the uh, Ricketts family fame. And uh, it's competing directly against one that's being run by Becca Mercer, the, you know, preeminent donor in in uh, Trump world, competing also against this Great America PAC and against another PAC, Rebuilding America uh, now. And so you got three, four PACs right there that are basically cannibalizing each other. And none of them have shown any great success. And none of them are up on the air. Sheldon Adelson, who was being relied on to give $100 million to the pro-Trump super PAC advertising effort, uh, finally, just this month, gave his first check, $5 million. Not going to cut it. And yet, and yet, the difference between the two of them, both in a lot of national polls and when we're looking at states like Florida is not that large. Yeah, I mean, that's right. That's sort of the the conundrum. We have to keep on reminding ourselves of that. All these metrics that we use to gauge the, you know, the the efficacy and the legitimacy of a campaign, well, they haven't really applied. They certainly didn't apply during the primary. And it appears, given the closeness of of most polls, that they are not uh, holding sway here. Let's look past Monday for our next data point, because this post-debate period is actually a watershed moment in House and Senate campaigns. And the data point we're going to consider is 4.2. That's the average points that Republican Senate candidates are running ahead of Trump in six battleground states, Florida, Missouri, Nevada, New Hampshire, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania. Scott, what is the state of the battle for the Senate? The state of the battle for the Senate is very, very close right now. It's a lot closer than it seemed in August when uh, Republicans were panicking, uh, to be honest. Um, right now, you know, there are, Republicans have 54 seats in the Senate. So if uh, Hillary Clinton wins the White House, Democrats need to pick up four Senate seats to uh, win the majority. 
And uh, right now, uh, they're they're really only feeling like they have uh, two in the bag. That's Illinois and Wisconsin. And then they're they're feeling pretty good about Indiana, where former Senator Evan Bayh is running. But that has gotten significantly closer in recent weeks. And then we've got this collection of six core battlegrounds that you just listed. Ohio has kind of fallen off the map a little bit because Senator Rob Portman there is running a whopping 10.9 percentage points ahead of Donald Trump, has really managed to separate himself from the national environment. But we've still got about a half dozen states where where the battle for the Senate is is raging pretty strongly, and it's not clear, uh, you know, if, if Democrats are, are kind of pressing uh, this advantage, that, however slim, that, that Clinton has in a lot of these states, because you've still got Republican senators uh, ahead or tied in most of them. I find Ohio absolutely fascinating in this race uh, because of Kasich and because of Portman and just how they have somehow managed to separate their brand of Republicanism from Donald Trump. And it's like this little cocoon for Republicans there for like old school, what we call, I guess, establishment Republicans. Yeah, I mean, I think a big answer to that question is that uh, Ted Strickland, the former Democratic governor who's the nominee there, has just gotten absolutely nuked. Uh, you know, speaking of traditional campaign metrics, uh, Ted Strickland, at least as of uh, a few weeks ago, had faced uh, more millions of dollars in attack ads this year than Hillary Clinton wow. has, uh, according in, to our in, colleague like, Shane in Goldmacher. Pure numbers. Mm-hmm, yeah. Wow. Uh, and, you know, Republican uh, super PACs. And Portman's campaign have just absolutely uh, torn into him and his record as governor. You know, he was governor during the recession. Ohio lost a lot of jobs and they've, they've really gone after him hard on that. And uh, he hasn't been able to recover. And Democratic uh, super PACs and the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee have really pulled their money out of Ohio. It has ceased to be a, a serious Senate battleground state at this point. But nationally on the on the presidential, how is that how is that affecting the Clinton versus Trump you know, I don't know if the the Senate races so much affect the the Clinton versus Trump matchup in a lot of these states as opposed to vice versa. That's certainly what Republicans have long been concerned about, right? And we mentioned this 4.2 point gap. What Republicans are concerned about is, is two things, talking about what's going to happen in, in the week after this debate, right? Pretty much every battleground House and Senate uh, candidate out there is going to go out in the field with their polling, and they're going they're going to be testing the presidential results in their states and districts. They're going to be testing the head-to-head with their opponents, and they're going to see, is this separation holding up between Trump and the Republicans? And also, is Trump, you know, as he moves up and down, and especially Republican operatives are worried that he's either going to outright lose the debate or is going to be declared the loser by acclamation by the, by the media afterward, and that that his numbers are going to fall, and that even if that four-point gap uh, persists, that Republican senators are going to fall with him, and they're going to pull them below their Democratic counterparts. That's what happened in August when so many of them fell behind. Trump has ticked up a little bit since then, and so have the senators, but they're really moving in concert. Yeah, I think, you know, there was some discussion of wishful thinking, I think, among Republicans of, like, reverse coattails, that (laughs) somehow some of these senators would help, some of these Senate candidates would help Trump in... in, uh, you know, in these key swing states where he's lagging. I don't think that the polls suggest that's not happening at all. It's so hard to prove also, you know, how do you know whether right. what's, what's driving this? You know on things? November the 9th. Right. <laughs> well, but also, I mean, some of these candidates have really worked to keep their distance from Trump. We talk about Portman. You know, the, the Ohio press keeps asking him, you know, what are you going to appear with Trump? And he says, like, I'm incredibly busy, you know, and he's like, I uh, just uh, just can't be bothered. But obviously, it's it's a it's a real specific strategy. You know, you see in Florida where Rubio obviously ran against Trump and had some very not nice things to say about him and keeping his distance still. 
New Hampshire, Ayotte, same thing, and has really sparred with Trump. So it's I think it's a concerted strategy by some of these senators and Senate candidates to to uh, to to keep their distance and sort of run. They're not running against Trump, but they're 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 not running with him, and they're saying one of their rationales is like elect me because I'm going to be a check against uh, whoever the president is <laughs> wink wink like they they're basically in some ways conceding that Hillary could win or is likely to win and that they want to you know be there to uh to be a check against her power. This has been one of the most abrupt changes of this cycle though. I mean it wasn't Four weeks ago that we were talking about ha- about the size of the wave that this could be for Democrats. In fact, we even got ourselves talking about, or at least other people were talking about, a House wave, a wave in the House that the Democrats could actually take control back. That's that's farce. It, it looks it looks a lot less likely now. And I think you know one of the crazy things about the House races this cycle is that they're developing so slowly. Democrats have a 30 seat deficit, right? They would need to they would need to net 30 to take back the House majority, which, as we have said, is unlikely. But right now, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee has only spent money in 14 districts uh, so far. Wait, say that again. The The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee has only done independent expenditures, you know, big TV in buys and stuff in 14 districts, districts so far. That's Why? down from 24 at this point in 2014, 21 at this point in 2012. And part of the reason is that we've talked a little bit about how the the party coalitions are shifting and especially how Trump has been an accelerant for kind of, you know, shifting more blue collar voters into the Republican Party, more white collar voters potentially into the Democratic Party. But, you know, where so if you're a Democrat and you've got these these white collar voters potentially shifting toward you, where do they live? They live in the suburbs outside big cities, and it is insanely expensive to advertise in some of them. And Democrats are having to hold on to their money right now. Essentially, the reason they haven't spent in very many districts right now is because almost all of their targets are outside major cities like Washington D.C., Miami, uh, uh, Los Angeles, uh, et cetera, et cetera, down the line. And they are holding on to their money until the very final weeks of this campaign to. Unleash it because it, it's so expensive to advertise in some of these districts where where their coalition now lives. So they're making a bet that that by doing the last minute it'll be more effective. I, I'm, I'm saying the last minute is all they can do. You, oh, okay. Like if you you want to be advertising on election day and before it, right? And so and then you know you you want to advertise as far before it as you can, but they can't stretch that far before it in some of these major metro. You know, a couple of the districts they're going after are in the New York City uh, yeah. metro market. It's all, it's impossible to buy TV there if you're a congressional campaign, right? That's, you know, a, a member of Congress raises enough money in two years to go on TV in New York for a week. And so they have to be very, very strategic about how they go about this. You know, it's another reason why the super PACs are key here. And again, you have Sheldon Adelson finally stepping up to the plate this month, uh, actually last month, he wrote a $20 million check to uh, both the the leading uh, Republican Senate super PAC and the leading Republican House super PAC reportedly. Um, And, you know, it's certainly helpful. It's a sign that the big money is recognizing the risk in, in the congressional races, but it's also potentially a little bit too little too late. I mean, it, like you said, the, the the ad time, it's not a matter of just having the money to be able to, to air ads in these expensive markets. It's like being able to get reservations, which are more expensive and fewer and far between now because like smart and savvy Democratic super PACs have been buying up uh, time as have the campaigns in these in these key districts. 
you know, an interesting thing about this that we were just writing about uh, yesterday on Campaign Pro, the National Republican Senatorial Committee has less money in the bank at this point uh, than they have in any election year since 2000. They spent very heavily over the summer, but they have less than $12 million in the bank to start September, and they do not have any of these coveted TV reservations after October 26th in the core battlegrounds. So this money that Allison has given to Senate Leadership Fund and that is flowing into other Republican outside groups is going to play a bigger role than ever in congressional Republicans' fights to keep their majorities. That's it for us. Goodbye, Scotland. Goodbye, pod people. Goodbye, Hedoskold. Goodbye. Bye, Ken Vogel. Fun time as always. Thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our illustrator, Bill Cookman, and my one-time secret intern, who is now a producer at Politico, Zach Montalaro. Of course, thank you to our listeners. Talk to you next week. We love doing this podcast, and we really love hearing from you. So please keep the emails coming to nerdcast at politico.com and go to your favorite podcast app and leave a review. Thank you for listening. This podcast was updated on Friday morning, September 23rd, to address an inadvertent error brought to our attention by one of our listeners. We wrongly dated one of Clinton's statements about Benghazi to an October 2015 hearing, when that statement was in fact made at a different hearing earlier in the year. Thank you to Michael Inojosa for pointing this out.